Sunday morning studying the book of 1 Corinthians together in a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. And if you're with us here this morning and you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and men who are coming up the aisles with Bibles, they'll get one into your hands. And then if you don't own a Bible, we want you to own a Bible and to read the Bible and to know the Bible and have your life changed by the Bible. And so make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Paul writes by the Spirit of God, and he says, Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. I mean, imagine a church receiving that word from the apostle. People are worse off for coming to your church than they'd be better off if they never came. Since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. And therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for these verses in your Bible and what they are intended to speak to us today. We pray that you'd freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit and that you give us ears to hear, not only these outward ears, but the spiritual ears inside to hear the voice of your Spirit speak to us today as we study your word and as we partake of the Lord's Supper today. Bless us, Lord. Speak to us, Lord. Thank you for the privilege of being able to hear you. Thank you that you're a speaking God, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 
First Corinthians is what is known as a corrective epistle, like most of the uh, letters of the New Testament. Sometimes people think that the early church was a perfect church, and it's only become a little uh, troublesome in the year 2014. Now, there have always been problems because churches are made up of people, and uh, we're complicated, plus we're fallen. And so there were problems in the church at Corinth, and Paul wrote this letter in order to address those problems. And the letter is a long one, 16 chapters, which speaks to the number of problems that this church uh, had. And Paul, as he's writing this correction to them, addressing with so, so many different things, he continues his correction of the church in chapter 11 by addressing abuses that were occurring within the church associated with one of the most amazing things that we get to do as Christians, and that is the partaking of the Lord's Supper. I think it's impossible to really understand what he's addressing here without understanding a little bit about what their kind of communion service was like 2,000 years ago. Uh, It appears that the early church partook of the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis, and it appears that that uh, service was probably in the late afternoon or early evening on, on Sundays. And typically in the early church, they would uh, precede the partaking of the Lord's Supper by enjoying what was known as an agape feast. And the word agape means love. It's the word that's used for the love that God has for us. So it was a celebration, this meal, this uh, celebration of God's love for them, a celebration of their love for one another, and a chance to express love toward one another. And as a part of that love for one another, people would bring uh, food, and they would put it out much the same way we would, uh, kind of like our potluck. Of course, we don't like the term potluck today because... We don't believe in luck as Christians, and we certainly don't believe in pot, no matter where it's legalized. (laughs) Things are getting complicated, things you could just leave alone before, but now it's legal. It'll be one of the next battles we fight now, Christians saying, no, it's, hey, listen, it's all natural, and, but most, a lot of you know, I won't say most of you know, uh, you can't smoke that and stay under the control of the Holy Spirit, but I digress. So um, they would bring the tables together, the food would come, people who were rich and well-to-do or maybe upper middle class, they would bring more food than their family could eat. And then people that didn't have any money at all, and remember at that time in, in history there were at least 7 million slaves that were part of the Roman Empire at that time, and many of uh, the Christians were slaves, or they were in positions that was just... Uh, you know, hand to mouth every day in terms of eating. They couldn't bring anything to a potluck, nothing to a potluck. So some people brought a lot, some people brought some, some people brought nothing, but there was enough for everybody. And that's what the early church would do in the various cities that they were in. And everyone would partake of the same meal and everybody was getting the same amount. They were eating the same quality of the meal. And it just spoke to the fact that no matter what a person's race or whatever a person's sex or their 
um, station in life or uh, socioeconomic or their education or their accomplishments or position. None of that mattered. They were all equal. Everybody was saved by God. And we were all equal debtors to God uh, for salvation, made one body to look after one another. And it was a special meal, just tremendous. There was just this feel of one for all and all for one. And then trust the church at Corinth to mess this whole thing up uh, with their selfishness and with their carnality that's so well documented through the letter and dominated by their selfishness. When they came together now for this agape feast, those that were more wealthy, uh, they would come and bring their food and they'd have it in their picnic basket or hamper and they would bring it and they would just eat with their family over here in this part of the room. And then somebody else, they would just eat what they brought and they brought and so forth. And then you had people in the room who were slaves that had been released by their owner. They weren't given pies by their owners or a casserole by their owners to take to a potluck. It was enough for them to say, I'll excuse you to go worship your God. And so they come with nothing, and all of these people are eating what they've brought from their homes. And you got this other group of people who don't even have a, a sandwich to share with one another, and their stomachs are gnawing with hunger, and this is the way that the, uh, the meal was, was taking place. And, and uh, the selfishness of the Christians and the carnality of the Christians in Corinth had just turned this wonderful agape feast into just this uh, another demonstration of like, no, we're not equal, you're over here and we're over here and we're not going to share. And, and everything that they were doing at that meal was the exact opposite of what all of this represented. I mean, here we have the symbols of the greatest sacrifice Self-sacrifice, the greatest expression of love for all people, male, female, rich, poor, and all. They're going to partake of all that this represents in terms of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And yet the meal leading up to it was an absolute violation of the life of Christ. And this is what was going on in the church at Corinth. And as if it couldn't get any worse, it did get worse. And that is some of the people were coming and they were eating their meals and they end up drinking too much while they're there and they drank so much with their food that they became drunk and then they partook of the Lord's Supper drunk. What kind of a church is that? It's just astonishing. And yet it's in us. I mean, it's in us, the fallen nature. But here they're going to take and... and, they're, and and eat, and they're going to get drunk, and they're not even going to partake of the Lord's Supper sober. It's just a terrible indictment against where this church uh, was, completely out of touch with reality, and a terrible representation of Jesus himself. And Paul rebukes them in verses 20 through 22, and he told them that, If anyone was so hungry that they needed a feast in order to satisfy their hunger or they didn't want to share their food, then stay at home and eat all that you need to eat at home so that you can then come and partake of the Lord's Supper 
without putting on this kind of a spectacle and, and dividing the local church in that way. And Paul said in verse 22, what they were doing was they were despising the church of God. And the church of God isn't a building. It's not brick. It's not mortar. The church of God is people. It's Christians. We are living stones indwelt by the Holy Spirit and made into a tabernacle and a temple in which the Holy Spirit indwells. He says you're despising uh, the church. You're despising the people within the church. And he said further, you're shaming those who have nothing. What an embarrassment for the poor to get that time off. They want to go. They want to partake of the Lord's Supper. And then all of this thing is going on. And it was just to publicly humiliate them and, and embarrass them and to shame them. It just They would come and they would say to themselves, they would know better because they knew the Lord. They knew that nothing like of what was going on was anything like the Lord. But it was like the new boss, the same as the old boss. This isn't any different than what I'm doing for my slave owner in, in life or the world, how it operates out there. Everybody makes sure that everybody knows who's upper, who's lower, who's this, who's that. And they couldn't even go to church to escape that, where we're all made one by the Holy Spirit. And it just shamed people and it humiliated them. And as a prelude to partaking of the Lord's Supper, again, Paul said, listen, go ahead and eat at home if necessary in order for you to come to church in such a way that you're not being governed by your belly and by your fleshly appetites, but that you can be dominated in your thoughts for what Christ has done for you in the partaking of the Lord's Supper. He warns those at Corinth in verses 27 through 34 with one of the most sobering warnings, really, in all of the Bible. And there's some pretty sobering warnings in all of the Bible. And he said in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That's a heavy thing for him to say. It's important to know what... Paul is not saying there in that passage. He isn't saying when he talks about partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. He's not saying that we need to be perfect in order to partake of the Lord's Supper. You've got a lot of Christians who have a very tender conscience towards God and they feel like if they ever fail him or they fell short last night or this morning or last week or last year, that somehow they can't partake of the Lord's Supper because... Uh, they're unworthy of partaking of the Lord's Supper. And that's not what he's saying here. All of us are unworthy of partaking of the Lord's Supper. Every single one of us. I'm not worthy of partaking of the Lord's Supper at all. I'm no more worthy of partaking of the Lord's Supper and these symbols of my Savior's body and his blood than I am worthy of the salvation he provided at Calvary. I'm not worthy of any of it. But that's not what he's talking about. Of course, none of us are worthy of that. That's what makes it grace. That's what makes it the love of God in saving us. What he's talking about here is partaking of the communion in an unworthy manner. It refers to partaking of it while deliberately living a life that is inconsistent with a life 
that is represented by the bread and by the cup, living a life that's inconsistent as a Christian with the life of Jesus. In other words, deliberately living a life that dishonors the Lord, that disobeys the Lord, or deliberately living a life that does harm to other people. And that's exactly what they were doing in Corinth. And so the Lord's Supper is supposed to be a time, he tells us in verse 28, of self-examination. That when we come together as Christians and we look at these symbols of Jesus' body and of his blood, the cracker and the grape juice, as we'll be serving in just a few minutes here. And as we look at those symbols and we partake of those symbols, we want to ask ourselves, is there anything in our lives that is unworthy of a Christian? Any practice in our life, any sin, any attitude in our life that is unworthy of one who declares themselves to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus, anything that's unworthy of the sacrifice that he made, not only for us to be a forgiven people, but to also be a holy people, a different people, a changed uh, people, changed from the life that we once lived. And so that would mean any sin or any disobedience to God's Word. And we would just come to God this morning and at any time we partake of the Lord's Supper, and if we become aware of some sin or some wrong attitude in our heart and to look and say, Lord, I just... You put your finger on that as I've just examined myself, as I have the elements that represent the body and the blood of my Savior. And Lord, I've, this sin has attached itself to me. I've allowed that to happen. You've been speaking to me a long time about this particular issue, and I haven't been taking you seriously. I've been giving you the yeah, yeah, yeah kind of thing. And then, but now I want to stop, and as I consider my Savior, consider the price he paid for me to live a different kind of life, I recognize this to be sin. I confess it to you. I ask for your forgiveness. I turn from it now and choose to live a life completely different and to live a life like Christ. And there's that cleansing that happens within within our lives as a result. And the Lord's Supper is supposed to be that kind of a time. And we partake of the Lord's Supper usually once a month on the second Sunday night of each month. So however long it, often it's happening, it's intended to be a time where we are getting current with the Lord related to any sin that we're allowing to introduce itself into our life and turning away uh, from it. Anything that would uh, be inconsistent with the life of Jesus. And... This introspection or this examining of ourselves would also include repenting of any situation or any attitude in my life in which I'm mistreating other people, where they are being shamed or they're being humiliated or put down by my attitude toward them or my treatment of them. Pride is an ugly thing in our lives, and it's something that we'll have to deal with until... We're face-to-face with the Lord one day, and it can come up. And pride can happen in a marriage where a husband begins to mistreat the wife, maybe not physically, maybe not even verbally, 
But there's just this humiliation. There's this shunning. There's this mistreatment. She's not being treated as the bride of, of Christ. And sometimes it can be the other way around, a wife toward a husband. And here is this thing going on between these different groups within the church of, of Corinth. And sometimes there can be an attitude or thing where we're actually mistreating other people, whether in a workplace or at school or within a family. Sometimes it can happen within a church when people are serving with one another. And sometimes conflict can occur when you've got a team that's serving the Lord in a particular area of a church and then somebody cops an attitude related to other people. They start to mistreat the other person. It's the same thing, just a different pair of shoes, but it's the same thing as what was going on in Corinth. It just wasn't a meal. It was just a different context. And this is a time for us just to look at our lives and say, Am am I treating people in this way? Have I become hardened to people, to the life that they live, the hardship that they face? My life is no longer a blessing to people. I'm a threat to people. I'm a danger to people. And then to recognize that that, that Jesus was never that to anyone in his life and his ministry. And to confess that as sin and to turn away from it as we partake of the Lord's Supper. In verse 29, it talks about there about um, the not discerning the Lord's body. And it's not talking about Jesus' body as he is in heaven. We are the body of Christ as Christians. And so they're partaking in an unworthy uh, manner, not discerning the body of Christ as failing to realize that every Christian is a part of the body of Christ and Jesus loves every single one of them and he identifies with them and makes them his body as much as, as uh, he makes us his body. He warns in verses 30 to 32 that God was judging some of them in the church, some of the Christians in Corinth. They were tearing down the church and uh, they were being a bad influence in the church. And so... God smote some of the people with weakness and some of them even with sickness, he talks about in verse 30. Now, I think it's very important to realize that not all sickness is a judgment from God. Probably a very minuscule amount of sickness or illness that we face as Christians could be tied to this, but it's important to realize that God can do that kind of thing where he can take one of his children and he can put them on a sick bed in order to remove them as an influence from the local church. Their influence has become so destructive that God said, I'm going to put you in a sick bed. I'm not going to even allow you to get to church. Or he can put us on a sick bed in order to get our attention and make us finally realize that he means business about this stuff. We can't just be slandering everyone in the body of Christ or treating people like they're our servants or abusing them or shouting at them. And lots of crazy things can happen in a church setting, not in a setting like this, but behind the scenes. And the Lord can take and remove a person so and put them on a sick bed when their actions and their attitudes are endangering the health of a church or other Christians. And then he talked about the fact that Paul said, many of you sleep, and he's not talking about melatonin or anything like that. He's talking about the fact that he, he took them home to heaven. He, he, cooked, he killed them. He just ended their life. 
And when God can't get the attention of a person on a sickbed in terms of making them face the, the fact that their actions are being harmful to a church and to individual Christians, then sometimes he'll just remove their influence by taking them to heaven. Just say to them, I can't trust you down there anymore. I talk to you, I talk to you, I talk to you, I talk to you, I talk to you. You don't listen. You know everything. You're destroying everything you touch. You harm every person you come into contact with. It's all division. It's all terrible. And so I'm just, I can't trust you down there anymore. I'm going to take you home to heaven. And there won't be any well done on, it, on that way of entering into heaven. And it's probably not a common experience, but it's one that... Paul wanted the church at Corinth to be aware of and for us to be aware of as, as well, that God uh, can do that thing. And that's why it's important, he tells us in verse 31, that we judge ourselves so that God doesn't have to take these kind of measures. Then in verses 23 to 26, he gives us instruction concerning uh, the Lord's Supper. And Jesus, you remember, he's the one who initiated the Lord's Supper or initiated this um, sacrament called um, communion with his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. So just hours before he's going to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he's going to be tried uh, multiple times, before he's going to be beaten multiple times, before he's going to be scourged, before he's going to be spat on, before he's going to be... Uh, crucified and hung upon that cross, he institutes this thing called the Lord's Supper. And we notice in verse 24 and also in verse 25, in introducing both the bread and the cup, Jesus declared that this was to be done in remembrance of me. And it's a powerful, powerful phrase. Do this, he said, in remembrance of me. A Christian could sometimes think, how in the world could anybody ever forget Jesus? Happens all of the time. In the last days, it, it, when you look at the seven churches that Jesus wrote, the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, the final four of those churches, he uh, spoke to them of his return, which gives rise to what I think is maybe some spe- sanctified speculation over the fact that those four churches are going to be the four major representations of professing Christianity at the time of the rapture of the church. But one of them, Laodicea, that's just busting out at the seams. And it's like the church at Corinth. They're they're so full of themselves and and, uh, and their selfishness and their self-focus and all. Jesus is on the outside of that church knocking to get in, and nobody knows there's anything wrong with that picture. So it can happen to a church. And so it can happen in our individual lives as Christians too. There's something about being a Christian for a while and serving the Lord for a while. And I don't say, it's not true of this church. And for that, I, I give the Lord praise and I thank Him for it. There's no politics in this church. But sometimes there can be a, a thing where, you know, the board doesn't particularly like the pastor and the pastor doesn't care for the board and the board doesn't like the deacons and the deacons don't like all of the elders and then the, and the greeters don't. And then you've got this whole dynamic and sometimes there's this fuss going on in a church, that fuss going on in a church, and it, that one gets cleaned up and it's followed by another and all. And then pretty soon 
we begin to think that this is what Christianity is all about. It's just a safer place to fight than the world. And then we come and we partake of the Lord's Supper, and Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And then we remember this is, what this is all about is him. This is all about a relationship with him. And everything just gets so simplified and we're brought back to the main thing. And one of the purposes of the Lord's Supper is it's God's way of keeping the main thing the main thing. And the main thing, so to speak, is Jesus. He is the center of everything in a church, but also in our individual lives. And to stop with all the problems, all the hats we wear in life, all of the stuff that we deal with and all. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. And we stop and we remember him. And we said, that's right. That's what, this is what it's all about. This is the center of my life, not a peripheral part of my life. Think about that church at Corinth. All the factions, all of the fighting. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. And then the sexual immorality that's going on in the church. And then some people are for it. And then other people are fighting against it, trying to be an influence related to the abuse of liberties and all. Going to church at Corinth was very complicated. And the Lord's Supper was a continual reminder that this is about him and about walking with him and praising him and worshiping him and giving him his rightful place in, in our, our lives. And Christianity can get very, very complicated. And sometimes parts of what we run into in the body of Christ and relationships can be even pretty disillusioning and, and uh, difficult. And this brings us back to realizing, no, this is what... It's all about. What are we supposed to remember? He said, do this in remembrance of me. Concerning the bread, he tells us that we're to remember that his body was broken for us. In other words, this is a time to remember his death and to remember the price that Jesus was willing to pay in order for us to be saved, for the forgiveness of our sins, to provide us with a righteousness that allows us to have a personal relationship with God, the price that he was willing to pay for us to sit here today and to know that one day, like Pastor Ted, if the rapture doesn't occur first, that heaven is absolutely in our future and that we will stand on those streets and we will have a crown that we will cast before the God who sits upon that throne. And that's our eternal portion And for us to have all of these priceless blessings that we live with that required the ultimate sacrifice from him and a reminder that wonder of wonders, he was willing to pay that price because of his love for us in order for us to be as rich as he has made us in Christ. And so when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we don't remember Jesus supremely as the great teacher is the great example, is the great prophet, is the great miracle worker, though we remember all of that. It's a time to remember him supremely as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and to realize that he has done that for us individually 
as Christians. The cup, he said, we're to remember in terms of doing this in remembrance of me that his blood was shed to provide us with a new covenant, the new covenant in my blood. A covenant means a contract. It means an agreement. A covenant in the ancient world, even today, what essentially it was was the contract or the agreement that constitutes the foundation of the relationship between two parties. In the Old Testament, when two men would enter into an agreement or a contract or a covenant, they would sacrifice an animal. They would cut that animal in half, lay it one on one side of a path, the other on the other side of the path, and they would walk right through the middle of that animal. They'd actually do a figure eight. And it was them agreeing to the fact that we are going to keep our word here in terms of what we've agreed here to is the foundation for our relationship here or the contract or the agreement that we've come to. When God made a covenant with Abraham in the Old Testament, promising him that his descendants would be as many as the stars in the sky, God made that covenant with Abraham, and then he told Abraham that there were several animals that he wanted sacrificed to be cut in half and laid on either side. Abraham has to be thinking to himself in the imagery of the day that God is going to pass uh, between the halves of these sacrifices and that Abraham will do that because that's what people did in that day. And when the time came after the sacrifices had been offered, the time came then to walk between the sacrifices to confirm the covenant. God caused a deep sleep to come upon Abraham, and God alone walked through the center of those sacrifices. And what he was saying to Abraham is the covenant that I have made with you, that your descendants will inhabit the promised land and your descendants will number as many as the stars in the sky. That covenant is not based upon you and me. It is based 100% upon me upon my faithfulness. You don't bring anything to it. It was a completely one-sided covenant. The only covenant that God has made with man that's more one-sided than the one that God made with Abraham in the Old Testament is this covenant. This covenant, Jesus said, is in my blood. The relationship that we have with God, the forgiveness of our sins, the salvation that we have, the confidence of heaven, those things are ours, not because on the basis of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, and then we add this little bit. Because even if we were forced to add one quarter of one percent, we would never be sure that our salvation was safe and sure. We'd be a nervous wreck day and night wondering whether we were going to flub the quarter of one percent. And so God says, in terms of your salvation, I'm going to make this covenant as one-sided as it can be. It is completely based upon the blood of my son, the sacrifice of my son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And because it is completely loaded toward God, we then have peace. We then have security and sureness in this salvation that it, it is not going to be fumbled because God never fumbles. He will never... This promise that we have 
will never fail because God is unfailing. And so this new covenant in my blood, and I love the fact that not only God's power demonstrated in the salvation that he's provided for us, but the wisdom of God. It almost leaves me as much in awe as the power of God related to our salvation, that he would look and say, this is the only way that I can save mankind and keep them saved and allow them to be sure in their salvation is to provide salvation as a free gift based upon the sacrifice of my son. And so this morning we want to partake of the Lord's Supper and we want to give the Lord our praise and to give the Lord our thanks as we do. To think about here this morning as Christians, to think as we partake of the bread and of the cup today that we are doing something that Jesus himself has personally commanded us to do and we have the privilege of obeying him in that. If you're here today and you are not yet a Christian, this is reserved for Christians. But there's no reason that you can't, right now, where you're seated this morning, say to God, God, I, I, and here's God's message to you. I'll give it to you. The gospel is good news. But the good news is good news because it's given in the light of the bad news. What's the bad news? The bad news is you're a sinner. You've been less than perfect in your life, and your sin has separated you from a personal relationship with God, the relationship that you've been created for. But the good news in light of the bad news is that God loved you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross to provide the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of your sins. And by putting your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, God will not only forgive you this morning, but he will come into your life by his Holy Spirit and you begin a personal relationship with God yourself. And then God changes everything about your life. And if you sit here this morning, you say, yes, I want that. You tell God right where you're seated, I want that. And then partake of communion with us this morning. And then after the service, come up and talk with one of the pastors or other people up here for prayer. And they'll give you a Bible and they'll give you some literature to help you get started in your relationship with the Lord. Do this in remembrance of me. Every thought of Jesus is a good memory. You've got some groups that look and they say, in order to make this more impactful, that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, that the bread actually becomes the body of Christ and the blood, the, the grape juice actually becomes the blood of Jesus. And it's called transubstantiation. Why would I think I need to do that? Is the memory not enough? Is the memory not enough? If this could become the literal body and blood of Christ, it could, that miracle could not mean more to me than the memory of him from the pages of Scripture and from the day that he saved me until this day. The same thing is true of your life.
These elements are simple. They're simple by design. Up in my office, I've got all kinds of artifacts from traveling. Whenever I travel someplace, and I've been able to travel a lot of places, mostly related to the kingdom, I have such a terrible memory. People come up into my office and they see all of these mementos from different places in the world. They think it's a shrine to tourism. It's not. It's a shrine to a bad memory. Because I can be someplace and in three weeks forgot that I've even been there. And yet I go over and I grab a postcard off of one of my shelves or a rock. I haven't paid more than a dollar for a postcard. All the postcards in my office, somewhere between five cents and a dollar. The value isn't in the postcard. The postcard reminds me of the event. It reminds me of the people that I was with, what happened there, what God was doing. That's the priceless thing, not the postcard. It's that this provokes a memory that I would forget if I didn't have something simple even to provoke the memory. There is so much to remember about Christ and to give him thanks for. And so this morning we're going to partake together as a church family. And as we pass the bread and then the cup, hold the elements, and then we'll pray together. And we'll partake together. So the men will come forward and the worship team will come forward. We will serve the Lord's Supper and we will partake together.